Well, quick confession, and I'm sure none of you are going to hold this against me, but I'm not all that good at math. But I do know a few things about math. One thing I know about math is something called the transitive property. How many of you know about the transitive property? A few hands went up. Good. I'm not alone. Okay. An example of the transitive property would be if A equals B, you didn't, you didn't know you were going to get a math lesson this morning, did you? If A equals B and B equals C, then A also equals C. See how that works? There you go. You're welcome. There's, there's also a similar transitive property that takes place in the midst of loving relationships. When you deeply love someone, over time perhaps, but inevitably, you begin to love what they love. Doesn't mean that two people in a loving relationship will always agree on everything or have the same taste. That's usually not the case. In fact, two people in a loving relationship could love each other because they're so different. Because their taste is different, because their opinions are different. Like the old saying says, opposites attract, right? But eventually, two people in a loving relationship, even if they're polar opposites, will at least develop an appreciation for what the other person loves. Recently, you might, you might have uh, heard that recently Oshie and I celebrated 15 years of marriage. Thank you. And I can tell you that we are about as different as two people can possibly be. But of course, I love her deeply, and so at the very least, I can appreciate the things that she loves. One of the things she loves are, is romantic comedies. And I pretty much can't stand them, most, most of them. But over the years, I've watched a ton of them with her, because I love her. And not all of them were horrible, just, you know, the majority of them. One of her favorites is The Holiday. How many of you have seen The Holiday? Okay, starring Cameron Diaz, Jude Law, Kate Winslet, and Jack Black. Now, I'm not gonna get into how utterly unrealistic it is that Kate Winslet's character falls in love with Jack Black's character. We don't have time for that, okay? But, the basic premise of the movie is that Diaz's character lives in LA, and Winslet's character lives in the English countryside, and they swap houses for a much-needed vacation. And then Diaz's character falls in love with uh, Winslet's brother, uh, and you know, chaos ensues, or comedy ensues, whatever. And, um, but it's what happens in the middle of this movie that has to do with the transitive property of love. So in the middle of the movie, I'm gonna go ahead and, I'm gonna go ahead and spoil it, because this movie came out in 2006. You've had your chance, okay? <laughs> Spoiler alert, uh, Jude Law's character seems distant and seems a little distracted, so Diaz's character thinks he might be seeing other women. In a bold and spontaneous move, she postpones her flight back to the States as she shows up at Jude Law's character's door you know, to profess her love, I'm staying, I love you, and she can tell that he's not alone in the house, and so his, his secret comes out. His secret is he has two daughters and he's a widower. Jude Law's character has been reluctant to tell Diaz's character this because if she's not prepared to love his daughters, then they can't be in a relationship together. And because he's falling in love with her, he can't bear the thought of her not loving his daughters. So he, doesn't, so he, so he hides the fact that he's a father. When we love someone, we want them to share in our love for something or someone. 
We want them to share in our experience of joy and excitement and fulfillment. But this isn't just true of parents and children. This is true of anything that we put our hearts and our souls into. Right? Think about art. Think about self-expression. If you really poured yourself out into something, you want to share that with someone that you love, and you want them to love it too. Otherwise, you feel like, okay, do you really love me? It's a reflection on me. Um, anything that's meaningful to you, anything that takes up a significant portion of your life. Another rom-com, this one that I actually like, is Fever Pitch. Anybody ever seen Fever Pitch? Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore are the main stars. And in this case, the thing that Jimmy Fallon's character hides from Drew Barrymore's character is that he's an insane Red Sox fan. It's an it's a absolute obsession. He's got like Red Sox toilet paper and bathroom curtains, like shower curtains. It's, it's ridiculous. But he can't hide it for long, but he's worried that it's going to be a deal breaker. So he tries to hide it, and it comes out, and they have to decide whether their love for each other can withstand his love for the Red Sox, right? This transitive property of love is going to become important as we transition from the Adore series to this new series that we're starting this week called Love in Public. The Adore series was about the corporate worship of the body of Christ, and Love in Public is about the public witness of the body of Christ. While the Adore series focused on the second emphasis of our mission and vision, to passionately love God, the Love in Public series is going to focus on the third emphasis, to purposefully seek the renewal of our city. And this third emphasis also has to do with love. The transitive property of love shows that loving God causes us to love what God loves. And God loves people. Because people reflect who God is. So the name of this new series comes from a famous quote by Dr. Cornel West about justice. Dr. Cornel West said, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. So that's why the transitive property of love is so important. Seeking justice is loving people in public. And loving people is one of the primary ways that we demonstrate our love for God. So we're going to take a look at a few passages from the Old Testament this morning and a few passages from the New Testament. But before we dive into the first text, would you pray with me for the work of the Spirit, the illuminating work of the Spirit? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as we look into the scriptures today, we pray for your work of illumination. Help us to see the relationship between worship and justice more clearly. Help me to communicate clearly. And help us to hear what you're saying to us both personally and collectively. We want to be a community that not only loves you passionately, but because we love you, also purposefully seeks the renewal of our city. So we pray that the spiritual eyes of our hearts and our minds would be open to you this morning. And that we would clearly hear your word for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So the first passage we're going to look at this morning comes from a, a small book in an obscure corner of the Bible called the Minor Prophets. Now, a little quick note about the, the moniker Minor Prophets. 
That has nothing to do with the significance of the prophet's stature or the significance of the prophet's message. It only has to do with the length of their books. So in a fair world, these books would be called the concise prophets. But we don't live in a fair world. So, uh, For context, this prophet, whose name is Amos, is an outsider to Israel's royal court. He's a farmer, and he's very reluctant to take on this prophetic role and speak truth to power. But we are blessed that he did. Because Amos is going to call attention to the hypocrisy that can result when we are financially comfortable and enjoy social privilege. We can hypocritically worship God while turning a blind eye to injustice. So starting in, verse, uh, starting in chapter 5, verse 21, I'm going to read from the NIV. You can follow along in your own translation if you got them. Uh, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 21. I hate, this is God speaking through the prophet, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Strong words, right? You would think that whatever God is complaining about must be, must be massive. Just a few verses earlier, the prophet outlines some of Israel's sins that God is rebuking them for. And they sound horrifyingly common. Everyday sins. Judges have taken bribes and denied justice to the poor. The poor are exploited for their labor in harvesting grain and building mansions for the rich. That never happens today, right? And for this, God rejects their worship refuses their offerings, and will punish Israel by sending it into exile. Can we just pause and, and, and consider for a moment how terrifying that is? I lived in New Orleans for just under five years, and in, I think in those five years, there were two judges that went to prison for corruption. A former mayor went to prison for corruption. A congressman had his offices raided by the FBI for corruption. A police chief was under investigation. That's just one city. And do I even need to say anything about the exploitation of the poor? Do I even need to talk about that? Because we know that happens everywhere all the time. If God judges God's people based on how we treat the poor, in the American church, we are in trouble. And I'm not trying to suggest that we can take this passage and just directly apply it to the 21st century church. I know that we are not ancient Israel. But what this passage teaches us is that God will not tolerate our hypocrisy. When we say we love God, but we do not love the people God loves, we're hypocrites. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker." But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. 
How can people who claim to know the heart of God not know that God is deeply concerned for the most vulnerable members of society? That is everywhere in the scriptures. Everywhere. There's literally hundreds of passages in the Bible about God's concern for the widow, for the orphan, for the immigrant, the foreigner, and for the poor. And there are literally hundreds of passages about God's judgment against Israel for injustice towards those groups. One of the most famous passages about God's judgment for the hypocrisy of Israel and for God's dream of justice for Israel is Isaiah 58. How many of you know Isaiah 58? Very, very familiar passage. 58.2 starts, for, God, for, for day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, says the Lord, as though they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the fast, the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Listen to this. Is not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe them and not turn, turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then, will you, call, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. It's another powerful indictment of our hypocrisy. Listen to this. God did not liberate Israel from slavery in Egypt only for Israel to become Egypt. God did not set them apart and make them a new nation, a new people founded on God's own law only for them to turn their backs on their past and their oppression and begin oppressing those among them who are foreigners, widows, and orphans. God's dream for God's people has always been that they would be a model, a new way of being human community together. 
God's dream for God's people has always been that they would be a society of shalom, wholeness, right-relatedness, justice, mercy, an alternative social order from every oppressive empire in the world. But you and I can know this intellectually. We can say it week after week, but it's still so easy when we are relatively comfortable and we enjoy relative privilege and power in society to divorce our worship of God from justice. It's so easy. It's incredibly easy. It happened, I've seen it happen a thousand times. I've been in meetings with church leaders who have studied the Bible extensively and led congregations for decades. I've been in seminary classrooms and faith-based nonprofit boardrooms and I've heard Christians say that justice is an afterthought. Justice is optional. A lot of Christians in the United States believe that Christianity is a set of beliefs that you affirm in your head. Jesus is God? Check. Jesus died for my sins? Check. I'm saved by grace? Check. Alright. I think I'm good. I think I got my ticket to heaven. And, uh, yeah. I think I'm good. Justice? Justice? Oh, no, I'm sorry. No thanks. I don't need any bonus points. Justice is not bonus points. Justice is not for those super Christians that are called to it. Some people are called to that, to seek justice. No. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of the Christian faith. Want me to show you? The Christian faith is founded on the teachings of Jesus. And at the center of the teachings of Jesus is this. The twofold greatest commandment. Does anybody know what the twofold greatest commandment is? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. A man came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus was asked, what is the one greatest commandment? And he answered with two. And if you think I'm, I'm stretching what Jesus is saying, think about this. Consider this. Paul is writing to Jesus' communities decades before Matthew is written. He's writing to the Romans. He's writing to the Corinthians. Decades before Matthew is written. And this is what Paul writes in Romans. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So Jesus and the Apostle Paul will not let Jesus' disciples divorce worship from justice. All the law and the prophets hang on the twofold greatest commandment. And if that was not enough, Jesus illustrates this dramatically. 
Here's how Jesus illustrates this in chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you in sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whenever I think about this passage, I think about this church in Boston. And this church in Boston had this amazing program that Oshie and I took, took liberal advantage of. It was a Friday night family fun night. You could drop your kids off, and they had kids ministry for young kids, nursery, kids ministry for older kids, and you could just drop them off and go on a date. It was a Friday night. Every Friday night. We did that for years. We were like, thank you very much. And it was right in the middle of Boston, Boston Common. Very old, historic church. Very affluent. Very affluent church. And over the years, it struck us how drastic the contrast was between the people inside the church and the people right outside the church. In fact, we would walk past with our little children. They were, they were little at the time. We'd walk past homeless people camped out right in front of the, the steps of the church. And we did our best as parents to explain to our children like the complexity of caring for the homeless. But our kids were just like, people shouldn't have to live on the streets. And, and it just, this passage always reminds me, what if we had the faith of children? And we just simply said, people shouldn't have to live like that. What if we saw every person in need as if they were Jesus? Isn't that the point of this passage? Jesus will not let us divorce our worship of him from our justice for the moment. If we love God, we will love those whom God loves with the love of God. And I could just stop there. And that would be enough reason for us to never divorce justice from worship. I could just say, because loving people in public is loving Jesus. I could just stop there. Sermon done. But there's two more reasons why this is really important. When we love people in public, not only do we love Jesus, we also demonstrate our gratitude to God for the mercy we've received. And, second reason, we also fight against our propensity to make idols out of God, to create a God in our own image, to justify ourselves. Take a listen to this passage that has both of these reasons in it. It's a short passage. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 19. 
We love because God first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates or despises a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. <clears throat> Often in my own life, I have seen that when I am most resistant to serving others, when I am most resistant to loving the unlovely, it is because I have lost touch with my own connection to, my, to the mercy that I've received in my life. Last week, Oshida talked about the woman who lavished that gift of perfume on Jesus. And Jesus said of her, the one who is forgiven much loves much. When we've lost touch with how, how merciful God has been in our lives, our motivation to seek justice for others is diminished. That's why Lent is a good time. We're entering into Lent this week. Lent is a good time to be focused on justice. Because Lent is a season when we're journeying with Jesus to the cross, and it's a time when we, we open ourselves up to reflection. We open ourselves up to repentance. Where in my heart, God, are places where you would call me to a new way of living? Lent is good because it, 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 it's a time of self Denial. It's a time for us to recapture that connection to God's mercy in our own lives. But this passage also highlights a huge blind spot that we have. If we're indifferent towards the suffering of other human beings, and we can see them with our own two eyes, then how can we honestly say that we love God whom we can't see? Here's what happens in reality. In reality, when we're indifferent to the suffering of people made in God's image, then we have created an idol and replaced God with an idol that justifies us and insulates us from our sense of responsibility for them. Now we've got a God who just thinks about my welfare, my well-being. We've got a different God altogether. Remember that teacher who asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? The text says that that teacher was trying to justify himself. He was trying to justify his indifference towards his neighbor. But Jesus wouldn't let him. We are prone to project our self-serving ideas onto God, creating an idol who is precisely who we want God to be. Just fine with everything that serves my interests. Today there are millions of people who profess faith in Jesus, but their faith is conveniently supportive of their self-serving pursuits. And that's a good indicator that we've turned God into an idol, when God is always interested in just helping me, just supporting the things that I want to do. And in this country, that is the air we breathe. That is the water we drink. We're conditioned to reduce our faith to something private. Something less complicated, something less costly. But the way of Jesus, the way of passionately loving God, forms us into people who love those whom God loves. And God has a dream for this world. 
When we fall in love with God, when we are passionately loving God, we take upon ourselves that dream that God has for the world. God's dream for the world is no more pain, no more oppression, no more sorrow or violence or injustice or death. God's dream for the world is wholeness, dignity, purpose, flourishing. And if our worship doesn't move us to make that dream more of a reality, then it's false worship. Over the next several weeks, as we journey with Jesus towards the cross in this season of Lent, we're going to continue exploring the public witness of the body of Christ in this series that we're calling Love in Public. And we're going to keep looking for ways that the, the way of Jesus forms us into people who love who God loves. The leadership of Roots is cooking up opportunities for us to put our faith into practice. And we're going to have more information about the details of those opportunities soon. But I want to say something about this. Don't let the opportunities that we come up with as a church constrain your imagination. Throughout the season of Lent, ask the Spirit to lead you and guide you into ways that you can seek justice. Let, your, let, let the Spirit broaden your imagination. Ask God to show you ways that you can grow in your love for those whom God loves and put that love on display in public. Let's pray. God, we sang earlier about the freedom that you have given us in Christ. That because of Jesus' life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, you have adopted us into your family. You have set us free from the bondage to sin and death. But may we never divorce our worship of you from your love for those who are most vulnerable in society. May we never turn a blind eye to injustice and seek to justify ourselves in our self-centered pursuits. God, I pray that our connection to the mercy that we've received would motivate us, would drive us to seek ways that we can see justice and shalom manifest in our neighborhoods, in our cities, and in this nation, and in the world. May we be a people that are so formed by your love that it spills out of us into the public spaces. May we be a community that is renowned for seeking the justice, seeking the renewal of this city. And may we be a people that humbly love because we were first loved. May we never project our self-serving interests onto you. But may we humbly submit that because we were saved by grace, because we, we've been adopted into this family, that now we are part of your movement. We are part of your redemptive work in the world. And we are honored and privileged to serve in that way. Thank you, Jesus, for this church that I know cares about justice. Thank you for each individual. And I pray that as we journey into Lent, that you'd be, you'd be giving us imagination for justice, imagination for renewal in our neighborhoods, renewal in the city. I pray for inspiration, creativity by your spirit. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.